For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And that concludes our Old Testament word from God. Now, New Testament, uh, Romans 3.25 through 26, which our sermon is based on. Hear now God's perfect, infallible, inerrant word. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that concludes the reading of God's word. Let's briefly pray that God would bless and anoint the preaching of his holy word. God, we are thankful we get to hear your truth this morning and that your gospel is going forth. May it transform lives and hearts. If someone's listening on the live stream, may they trust in Christ if they haven't already. And if anybody's here who hasn't trusted in Christ, may your Holy Spirit work mightily in their hearts, heal their hearts to trust you and to receive forgiveness and eternal life and everlasting love in you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I've been, I thought about it, and I have been doing ministry for over 15 years now. It's amazing how the time flies. And one of the things I've realized is with a lot of years, well, not, I don't know, a lot of years, 15, you know, you might say that's not. <laughs> so depending on your perspective, I feel like 15 years is a lot at this point, but it's, 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 it's flown by. Um, and one of the things I've accumulated throughout the 15 years of ministry that I've done is a lot of questions. Lots of questions. Um, some of them are common questions. Some of them are questions like, wow, I can't believe you thought of that. I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed, frankly. That's a really interesting question that you're asking there. And remember, a teenage boy asked me if there was going to be video games in heaven. <laughs> so you, you get all sorts of different Thing. One guy recently asked me, and I don't even know like how this is related to like Christianity or the Bible, but it was just bizarre. He asked me, and there's no one here, so don't worry. I mean, you know, <laughs> if trees could be possibly conscious. I mean, you know, how do you come up with that? I don't even know. Um, my personal, my personal favorite is one uh, kid asked me in particular if. God could make, and I don't know how he came up with this, if God could make a pig, like an alien pig, it was an alien pig. I mean, that's very specific, oddly specific. And if God could put a human soul or an image of God bear in this, in an alien pig. So yeah, like a human trapped in an alien pig body. I mean, okay. Let me tell you. Youth pastors are very underappreciated. Youth pastoring can be very challenging. All sorts of interesting questions that you're going to get. Joking aside, what surprises me the most is this is the most common question I get. And it's kind of interesting that this is like common. It's like that's very specific and kind of out there. But this is a, the most common question I get is whether the people in the Old Testament were saved. Surprisingly, uh, you know, you might think, wow, I guess people really care about Moses, where he went, or Abraham. They might have a heart for Old Testament stories. 
And so it may seem like just a, at first glance a completely random question. But the reason why this question comes up is we as Christians believe that it is the is a death and suffering a death of Jesus that gets us saved. It's what Jesus did for us when he said it was finished on the cross. That's his atonement, his sacrifice on the cross. That's what saves us. But the issue is, Old Testament saints, Jesus hasn't died yet. So that's a vehicle by which we are saved, and that hasn't happened yet. So the concern, the question that arises in someone's head is, okay, Old Testament saints, that, that's what Jesus' death saves them, hasn't happened the worry is they may not be saved. Another concern people have is, um, and it goes something like this, the Bible teaches that we are saved by trusting in Jesus Christ, but, one might think, back then, no one knew, knew who Jesus Christ was. He hadn't come to, he hadn't taken on a human nature, suffered and died. So how are Old Testament saints to believe in Jesus since there's no Jesus in the Old Testament? Another concern, this one's last, and this one's, this one's also interesting, and people thought about this and talked about this a lot, but people in the Old Testament, they would say, some people would say, I'm not saying I believe this, but this is what people have kind of thought up, is the people in the Old Testament didn't believe in the Trinity, the belief that God, there's one, one personal God who's spirit, and that, and that one immaterial personal God, there are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three in one, as they'd say, that's a Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In this one God. And so people didn't, they would say, well, they didn't know that in the Old Testament, or there was confusion about that, and so it's like, they don't fully know who God is, and so, you know, the worry is they are not saved, and so people have these concerns, and here Paul answers this question that people have, thinking through these things, like, well, no, in fact, God does save Old Testament saints. He passes over their sins, forgives them of their sins. And so let's see how Paul, kind of looking, framing it from this question, answers this in Romans 3.25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, by the death of Jesus, turns aside the wrath of God for our sins. To be received by faith, that's how we receive salvation, is by trusting in Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, not about student loan debt there, I always talk about forbearance for loan debt, but it, 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 it has a deeper meaning there than probably just paying off student loans. But because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, passed over. So God put forward Jesus to receive the punishment for his sins, and this was to show his righteousness because in the Old Testament, he had forgiven sins of the people. And so Jesus took the punishment for those sins, even Old Testament saints. And this means that God had forgiven the sins of these people and that they were saved. If your sins are forgiven, you are saved. And uh, God just can't let those sins go. Like, oh, you know, God's like Mr. Rogers or Barney, no big deal. You know, Grandpa, just let things go, no big deal. No, God's an infinitely just being. He has to punish sin, and so he would no longer be righteous if he didn't punish sin. And so, and so that, that he was looking forward to that justice being satisfied in Jesus, looking forward to that future event. And the Old Testament saints' sins were, were put on the cross of Christ so that in the Old Testament, their sins were forgiven. Um, and so they're looking forward to the future work of Christ. God is in viewing that through that prism. Now, the Old Testament saints... Uh, were saved, what some people have thought, what some people have said, I've heard people say this to me, well, you know, Nate, the Old Testament saints, you know, there was no grace and faith back then, no death of Jesus, so perhaps they were saved 
by works. New Testament, you're saved through grace and love. Old Testament, you're saved through works. Who's heard that? I'm just curious. Anybody ever hear that before? Few people. Yeah, so that's the idea. But when you look at the whole Bible, when you look at the New Testament and you look at this, you see that, no, and as a matter of fact, people in the Old Testament were never saved by works. No one can be saved by works. It's impossible to work your way to heaven because we're all imperfect. To err is human. So that's, that's not possible. It's the only way that the Old Testament saints were saved is the exact same way that we are saved by faith, grace alone. Romans 4.1 shows us really clearly. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For the, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Goes on to say, so if we're worried about King David, no, it goes on to say in Romans 4, in this very same chapter, addressing this point, how the Old Testament say, saints were saved by works, even, or faith, don't, oh, oh, don't get those confused, Nate. <laughs> um, the Jews saw at the time that they were saved by works, and so Paul's kind of outlining this in Romans 4, and he goes through David. David... Um, was saved by grace. He speaks of his blessing in Romans 4, 5 through 8. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who declares righteous or justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as also David speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not or will never, impossible, to count his sin. And so this is a blessing that New Testament saints experience, Old Testament saints experience salvation through grace and faith alone. The, the difference between Old Testament saints, there's other differences, but this is a main one, is that we as Christians, we're looking back to the finished work of Christ and trusting in that, whereas Old Testament saints are looking forward to the, to the finished work of Christ and trusting in that. That's, that's the difference is where is kind of faith shaped at? Ours is backwards, theirs is forwards. Um, and so some would say, well, yeah, well, they, they didn't know anything about Jesus. How could they do that? They, you know, they didn't know about Christ. You know, some people have this idea that Jesus is just not even in the Old Testament. And uh, the Bible teaches that they did know Christ. They did know him. Uh, in John 8, 56, Jesus says it himself. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's Jesus talking about Abraham, right? Abraham knew Jesus. It was also Moses that knew Jesus because Moses wrote about Jesus. John 5, 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You might be thinking, well, you know, I can't, I can't believe that this Old Testament, these Jewish scriptures that they teach clearly about Christ. You know, you read the Old Testament and you get, you look through Leviticus, um, every person who starts a Bible plan, I, I've noticed this, they all start a Bible plan and they start in Genesis and they get burned out by Leviticus. I'm like, just start with John and Romans and you can do, you know, let's, let's start you off light. You know, it's like lifting the heaviest weight at the gym right away, you know. Um, 
But no, and so, you know, it's just about genealogies and Nate, it's about animal sacrifice. That's got nothing to do with Jesus. Well, those genealogies are outlining the lineage of Christ. Those animal sacrifices are pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. And so, yeah, the Old Testament does point to Jesus. It's about Jesus. Isaiah 9 clearly outlines the idea of Christ coming, and he just wouldn't be some Joe Blow. He wouldn't just be some random dude, but he would be fully God and fully man. He'd have a human nature and a divine nature. Um, this is what Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, we read this at Christmas, and I think we hear it so often we might not think about it, um, take it for granted, but this is what it says about Jesus, about Christ. For to us a child is born. So he has the human nature. He grows. He develops. He's a child. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So it says here, he is a child. He's born of a child. Born of, he's bo I mean, born of a child. <laughs> say born of a virgin. That doesn't sound right. Um, and at the same time, he is fully God. He is almighty God. Mighty God. And so it says here, Christ is God, that he's going to take on this human form, this human nature, rather. And so this is not something that Jesus was making up when he said the Old Testament saints knew him. He's not just, you know, spitballing here. This is true. And I, uh, um, Micah goes into specific detail about his origin, his, his heavenly origin and his earthly origin in this, in, in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Uh, Hebrew word alam there uh, indicates eternity, from eternity. He's, there, he never began to exist. He's always existed from eternity, and he takes on a human nature, and he's born in Bethlehem here. This is incredible. It's not like it's vague about who Jesus is. You, you know, this, it tells us who Christ is here. And so the New and the Old Testament is, outlines this. Now, some people have this idea that, I mean, and, and there, there's a little bit of truth to this. So I don't want to like shoot this down like this is the worst idea ever. I, I agree with this in, in part, but there's some qualification to be made here. Uh, that Old Testament's, like going to be always less clear than the New Testament. So, you know, New Testament, you get, you get, you know, all the clarity. Old Testament's kind of like, you know, vague whisperings, you know, not as clear, Oracle of Delphi. I don't know what's going on, you know, you know, uh, and, and so you get this deeper clarity on things in the New Testament. That, I would say, has truth to it. I don't want to disagree with that, but it's not always the case. It just, it just is not true because one of the greatest clarities that we have of the death of Christ, the meaning and the purpose of the death of Christ, does not come from the New Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament. It's referenced in 1 Corinthians 15. But the clearest meaning we have that scholars appeal to, uh, theologians appeal to, is in the Old Testament, and that's Isaiah 53. This is, this is, this is a, one of the clearest teachings on the death of Christ, its meaning, purpose, and function. It says in Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hid their faces that he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Goes on to say a few verses down in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall, he, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities, shall bear their sins. I want to challenge you guys here. This is kind of a funny idea. Um, not one of the first I've shared, but this is interesting. So you talk to someone, just, I don't know, you can try this on a random friend. Don't blame it on me. One of the things you should try is, if you know someone who just has a little bit of Bible knowledge, maybe just a tiny bit, and you want to read this, these passages to them and say, where do, you, where do you think this is from in the Bible? Is it, you know, where do you think it's from? And you know, they won't know the, the book, and so you say, well, how about this? Do you think this is from the Old Testament or the New Testament. There were studies done that shows that every, people that have you know, a little bit of Bible knowledge will say, no, it's definitely from the New Testament. It's talking about the, the death of Jesus here. This is what it's talking about. And she's like, oh, no, actually, it's from the Old Testament. It's amazing. That's how clear it is that you can get people to reckon, think, think, well, trick them. I guess you shouldn't trick people. That's not very nice. Uh, but, you know, I, I've done that a few times. Uh, but, yeah, this is it almost like you trick people into thinking this is from the New Testament because it is just so clear and so amazing. And so this is why Jesus can say this with full warrant and justification. The last chapter of Luke, he says, hey, guess what, guys? That Old Testament, it's about me. That's what he says here in Luke 24, 25 through 27. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory, his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures of things concerning himself. According to Jesus, that Old Testament, it points to him. It's about him. It's about Jesus. So we can say that, in, as a matter of fact, they knew Christ in some sense. The Old Testament saints knew Christ, and that's according to Jesus Christ himself. He says that. Now, what about this last concern that the Old Testament, they don't really fully know who God is. Some would say, oh, there's no way that the Old Testament teaches a doctrine of the Trinity, and so they didn't believe in this idea of God. They don't have this right conception of God, and so the worry is that people have is that, well, perhaps they may not be saved. Um, well, I don't know if the thief on the cross had a perfect, working, functioning doctrine of the Trinity, right? He just, you know, trusted Jesus. You know, remember when you come in your, in your kingdom, trusting that it is Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God is, includes Jesus there. So he de definitely seemed to believe in the divinity of Christ. But I don't think that a person needs, you know, a perfect Nicene Creed or, you know, perfect doctrinally formulated, precise, with all, you know, the bells and whistles of 
the Trinity in order to be saved. And I don't think, I think the thief on the cross is a, is a good counterexample to that. But I do think that the Old Testament saints did have this view of God as God being one in some sense and also many persons in another sense. And just to give you a common passage that's cited like this, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, our image, if I say, um, you know, if I'm talking about, you know, this is me and Laura's, our kids, that assumes multiple persons. So let us make man in our image after our likeness, the plural is used there, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds, the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God, not gods, not many gods like polytheism, so God, just no esthety and just God, one God created man in his, own, in, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you have here this us and our being described all throughout Genesis, as a matter of fact. Um, and you also have the one God creating. So God created his image, and then there's plurality in God. Us, are going on here. And so you have this one God. In the Bible, Isaiah 43.10 says, There's no God before me, none after me. There's only one God. That's the Shema. That's what all you know, little Jewish girls and boys would learn to recite, is that there's only one true God of Israel. There's no God before him, none after them. There is one true God. And yet, the Father is God. Everybody thinks that. The Father is God the, the, throughout the whole Old Testament. We just read Isaiah 9. Jesus is God, Almighty God. He is God. And then in Job 33, it calls the Holy Spirit the Creator. Well, only God can be the Creator. And so in the Old Testament, you have one God being clearly taught, and yet you have three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, I would say in the Old Testament, it seems, looking at this data, that, yeah, they did know the, the triune God of Scripture. They knew that there was one God... And there's three persons in that one God, three centers of consciousness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, they did have this, and so they did have salvation. They knew God. And so God provides a way of salvation to those who trust in Him, to those who believe in Him. Anyone seeking God and trusting in God, God's going to find a way and means to save them. It's not God's like some kind of like devious trickster, like I'm going to see if I can get, a, get them out of technicality here and send them to hell, you know, because, you know, Jesus hasn't come yet. God's not like that. God's a God of grace and mercy and salvation. And so God provides this patience to, to his people, even though Jesus had not come yet. He, it says here, you know, the forbearance, that kind of describes in Greek uh, a patient disposition. If you want to know what they also mean by the loans, the loan people are having patience on you, <laughs> forbearance. Always hear that in the context of student loans. But yeah, God in his patience looked over those sins. He didn't want to punish his people because he he loves them. He cares for them. And he knew that he was going to send his son as a part of his plan to pay this price. And so this shows us the patience, the kindness, the mercy of God to those who believe in him. He's not going to try to condemn you. Not trying to say, oh, I got you on technicalities. No, he wants to save people. He is a God who saves, who loves, who goes after you. He has mercy and mercy upon so many people. And nothing displays this better. Then Romans 3.26, the, the last verse we'll be looking at here. It was to show his righteousness at the present time.
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the death of Christ shows us that God is righteous. And just because he just can't let go of those sins, he has to punish sin. And Jesus took that punishment on the cross. So this shows his justice, that he can't just let things go. That he's not like a grandpa, he, he's an infinitely just being. And so he can be just in declaring you just. He, he can be just in declaring sinners innocent, like you and me, sinners righteous, like you and me, because of the one who has faith in Jesus, because of what God has set up in his plan, what he has put together here. But what I want you to notice here, and it's so interesting to me, it's so powerful, is that it is God who justifies you. The infinite God, the highest authority, it is him who, it's, it's him who declares you righteous. He goes through all of these steps to show his justice, all of these things, so that at the end of the day, he can declare you just and righteous and innocent in his sight. Even though we're not, we sin every day. And because God justifies us, we don't have to go through this slavish pursuit of justifying and trying to vindicate, being, you know, we can be defensive often. We don't have to do that. God has already justified us. We don't have to feel the need to constantly defend our existence that we're special, that we're meaningful, that we're something, because in Christ, God has already done that for you. It is God who's the one who justifies you. I don't justify, you don't justify yourself. God does that for you by trusting in him. So whether people think you're worth it or not, or people are really judgmental about you or whatever it is, people think you're going to hell, um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they think because at the end of the day, what matters most is what God thinks. And it says here, he justifies you. He's the one that declares you righteous. He doesn't condemn you. He washes you. He justifies you. And uh, Paul describes this, this comforting reality of what it means in our relationship with God, what it means for us, for God to justify us. How that, like, how amazing and mind-blowing that is. And this is in the most, I believe, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament, Romans 8, 31 through 39. It kind of really unpacks this idea that God is the one who justifies you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Literally. He's the highest authority. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. These are kind of the results of God who justifies you. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us, praying for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he is the one who justifies. We don't justify ourselves. And so there's nothing we can do looking at this text. There is nothing we can do to ruin or break or mess up God justifying it. It'll, it'll go through. If God declares you righteous, it's going through and you ain't stopping it. It's going to happen. He will never, ever 
stop loving you. Because he is the one himself who cleaned you, who declared you righteous. And so when you believe in Jesus, you have this, this unlosable, impenetrable righteousness that you can never lose. This love that will never fade or go away. Things in this life will fade away. This old church, whatever it is, whatever physical thing you see, it will fade away. But God's love will never go away. Earthly riches fade away. Not God's love, not his mercy. Paul asks this question here. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is no one. Who can bring a charge against someone who believes in, in Christ? God's the highest authority. So even if your worst enemy or even the devil himself, Satan himself, brought a charge against you, it could never stick. God would never accept it. He's the highest authority. You don't got a greater authority than God. He is, by definition, the highest God would never accept it because he is the one who literally justified you. He has already declared you righteous and innocent in the blood of his son. You know, we have this tendency, I have this tendency to beat ourselves up. Kind of like, you know, self, you know, emotional self-flagellation. Like, ah, you know, I hope you don't literally do that. That would be really messed up. Um, but yeah, we have a tendency to relive all the stuff we've done, the sins, the failures, you know, beat yourself up for a long time. And, you know, you, you kind of do this thing where you deceive yourself into thinking that, oh, well, because I'm kind of, you know, emotionally kind of, you know, kind of, kind of whipping myself here, you know, kind of beating myself, running myself through the mud. Well, I'm, I shows you like I'm taking sin seriously, you know, I must be good and righteous by doing this. And maybe God is pleased by that. I, I've had thoughts like that so often, but you know, he isn't. Do not charge yourself guilty when God has declared you not guilty. When he has declared you righteous. I love this quote I read from a pastor this week, just kind of going through, uh, you know, you mindlessly just scroll on Instagram and Facebook. We all do that, come on. Well, maybe I just do that. But, um, you know, you're just kind of like doom scrolling. Yep. Just hours thinking, you know, three in the morning. I didn't do that this week. I'm kidding. But, you know, people do that. You see, you're scrolling. I saw, I saw this quote from this pastor. And he says, it is the work of the devil, not the work of God, to bring up forgiven sins. See, it isn't the holiness and righteousness of God for anyone to drag yourself through the mud over things you failed in the past or sins you've penned up, things you've messed up on. You know who does that? The enemy does that. The enemy's greatest weapon against you, your life, your emotional well-being, your spiritual being, the enemy's greatest weapon are shame, Guilt and accusation. You know what Satan's name means? It means the accuser. He is the one that accuses us and makes us feel guilty and shameful for past sins. Not God. In the book of Revelation, it says that, that he accuses the brethren night and day. That is his name. That's what Satan means. Isn't that interesting? His actual name just means the accuser. And if you look at the prophet Zechariah, he gives us a picture of where Joshua, the high priest, is in these filthy rags. Guess who's accusing him? Is it God? No, it's Satan. And what does God do? He justifies, he cleanses him in these white, pure clothing here. Zechariah 3.1, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan at his right hand to accuse him it's Satan that's doing that. Not God, Satan. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. 
The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It is not this a brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing there before the, before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So this morning, if you trust in Christ and you feel shame and guilt as we all do, know that shame and guilt is from Satan. It's not from God. Uh, it's true, God does, through the Holy Spirit, does reveal our sin to us and our shortcomings, but that's for the purpose of growth. That's for the purpose of, of development and repentance and growing and becoming more Christ-like, following Jesus and being transformed to greater degrees of blessing. That's what those sins are being revealed for, not to you know, self-flagellate yourself. It's the enemy that brings up these sins for us to wallow in, you know, guilt and failure. Satan's work in the Bible is to constantly bring doubt to something that God, either God has done or said. You look consistently throughout the Old New Testament, you're just going to see that. And he did this in the garden, right? And he continues to do it in our hearts to this day. Satan brings doubt to our salvation because of things we did a long time ago. You know, you're just in the shower, driving your car, whatever it is, you're doing something just mundane, and you know, thought pops in, like, I can't believe I did that 10 years ago or 15. You know, oh my goodness. And you're like, oh man, I don't know. I, how could anybody like me ever go to heaven? Well, you don't earn heaven. Jesus earns heaven for you. So that's the whole point of the gospel, breaking these strongholds of shame and guilt and everything. But I love um, how... Uh, the Bible summarizes this, how Satan's work really is, um, and it's called the, the Jesus Story Book Bible. Like, if you don't own that, you may not be a Christian. I'm just kidding. No, you're good. See, I'm bringing up that now. No, no. But this is a great book to read your kids. I mean, this is a great book to tell them about the love and mercy and grace of God. It's a great book. Um, I read it to my kids. I read it to Abigail. And... Um, it's just terrific. And I'm going to read you the story. This is um, uh, the story of the Garden of Eden and all that. And so this is what it says. It says, as soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. It says, does God really love you? The serpent whispered, if he does, why won't he let you, you have the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's word hissed into her ear and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste and that's all. You'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some. And Adam Eat some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave, go away. It would live in, in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, does God love me? God doesn't love me. That's the lie of the enemy. That's a lie of the devil. And one of the greatest evidences that just crushes that wicked, evil, satanic lie 
is the gospel. That's why we preach the gospel here every single Sunday. Because it is the greatest love story ever told. It transforms us, it cleans us from the inside out, and, and it, it crushes the lies of the enemy. And I love the way that this um, Christian band, Third Day, who's heard of Third Day? I, don't wanna, I wanna see how old I am here. Okay, people have, okay, that's good. Um, great band, and I love this, this song, it's called Love Song, and I wanna read you the lyrics that crushes the enemy's lies. Speaking from God's perspective, from Jesus' perspective, just to be with you, I'd do anything. There's not a price I would not pay just to be with you. I'd give anything. I would give my life away just to be with you. I did everything. There's not a price I did not pay just to be with you. I gave everything. Yes, I gave my life away. That is how much God loves you this morning. You trust in Christ. And so when you feel the shame of those past sins building up in your heart, know that you don't need to bear that shame any longer because Jesus bore that shame on the cross 2,000 years ago. It is finished. It is like the sea of forgetfulness that I read this morning. He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, as far as possible from us. That's the kind of grace we have. It's crazy grace. And this is why God will always love you and never stop loving you. I love the way this old hymn puts it. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. That is such good news. Let us pray and give God thanks and glory.